You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are doing our Skype thing again. Uh, had some just been a weird scheduling issues this month, but we are adapting and overcoming. So That's right. <laughs> we're we're going to push on through. Um, when we last left, uh, we were talking about David and Bathsheba and learning about some of the circumstances going on with that. <laughs> um yeah, so now um, I'm not sure. Are we done? With, we're done with the initial encounter. Are we on to kind of the aftermath? Is that where we're at? Uh, well, yeah, we're going to like wrap up just the last couple of verses in chapter 11, and then we're going to jump into chapter 12. And okay. so, um, because we we didn't really talk about what happens once Uriah is dead, and we, other than the fact that Bathsheba did lament, she did mourn. Uh, we got that repetitive connection just reaffirmed Uriah is her husband she is his wife she is upset about this and she is you know she's not sounding like the the wanton seductress who who wanted to marry the king so she could climb the social ladder she she sounds like a woman who genuinely cared about the man she was married to and so I I think sometimes we miss that uh, that verse because the rest of the story is so sensational that we just kind of, oh, okay, she grieved. Well, that was the right thing to do. But the fact that the Bible goes to great lengths to emphasize that connection she had with Uriah should tell us this was her perspective on their relationship. She, she wasn't trying to become the, you know, the, the person that we see in all the intrigues uh, um, portrayed in TV of, of the royal courts and all of the the scandal and everything. She really was a woman who was just doing what she was supposed to do when she realizes uh, that she's caught up in something she did not want to be a part of and did not ask to be a part of, despite what you may have heard. So um, we're going to pick up in verse 27, and we're just going to look at the first part. Um, Then we'll move through. It says, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her into his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now, to outside observers, this looks to be a compassionate act on David's part. Remember, they don't know any of the background. All they know is that one of David's mighty men have died in the war. Uh, He died a brave, honorable death, uh, doing what he was supposed to do. And then here's his widow. And his widow needs to be taken care of. And so under Hebrew law, we're looking at Leverite marriage being the next step for her. And so, you know, not only is Uriah David's brother in arms, but he's also um, not Uriah, but Bathsheba's father was part of the tribe of Judah. So David is a relative and it would have been appropriate for him to claim her as a wife. The problem is that David is using a very sacred and compassionate act, caring for a widow to cover his sin. and. God doesn't really care for this. This is not something that's ever positive when people use something holy and sacred and meant to be an act of compassion as a way to get ahead. 
And this is where we start to hear echoes of um, Simon and Levy with uh, the rape of Dina back in Genesis, where the brothers used the rite of circumcision in order to um, be able to conquer the, the city after their sister, sister had been raped. But there's a, there's a really interesting midrash on this passage specifically, and it's a comparison of David and Bathsheba with David and Abigail. And they claim that David was actually going to attack Abigail in the beginning of their story. Now, if you go back, we got an episode on that, so you can listen to all of that. I'm not going to get into a whole lot of specifics. But they say that she was wise enough to divert him with her, with her words, and that's the reason why she's so celebrated. And the two stories do have some similarities, and we're just going to hit some high points because I think anybody who's been following us will understand that y'all will be familiar enough. You don't need me to spell everything out specifically. So first we have both women are married. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. Both women impress David and both women become the wives of David after the deaths of their husband. But remember the similarities are what teach you how to see the differences. So you know, Nabal sees David as a terrorist is basically what he calls him. Mm -hmm. Where Uriah was David's faithful servant. He was one of um, David's mighty men. He was devoted to David. David sends for Bathsheba. Abigail goes out to meet David. And actually under the rules of Torah, Abigail's more scandalous because women who go out, remember you go back to uh, Rachel and Leah and Dina, women who go out, Leah went out, uh, Dina goes out. And so they, they're the questionable ones in the Torah, not women who are at home doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah. Abigail makes her interest to David known. She's the one who initiates the conversation. Remember, she kept saying, my Lord, my Lord, which is another word for my husband. Uh, she basically says, hey, remember me. When, when God vindicates you, when things are going your way, remember me. Uh, she really threw herself at David's feet, but Bathsheba's quiet. She only spoke those two words, I'm pregnant. Mm -hmm. That's it. So David receives from Abigail, and he, he's given from Abigail, you know, the food and the wisdom. Bathsheba's taken. And Abigail is almost giddy over the death of Nabal. And remember, she was so quick. I mean, she jumps up and she gets her servants and she, she's saying, I'll wash the feet of David's servants if I can be his wife. Where Bathsheba, she's lamenting and she's you know, mourning over the death of her husband. David sends messengers to Abigail when he learns of Nabal's death. And again, David sends messengers to Bathsheba while Uriah is still alive. So it's really interesting to me that Abigail's remembered as this wise woman. She's, she's celebrated. She has a lot of prestige uh, if she's taught about it all. She's almost always presented positively, uh, at least in my experience. And she is the wanton hussy in this little scenario. Bathsheba's not. And it's, it, it just blows my mind that here Abigail just throws herself at David. And we talk about how fantastic she is. And Bathsheba's at home minding her own business, and she's the horrible one. Right. And we, you know, we aren't evaluating it by the same standards. And you know, the thing is, what we're evaluating them on isn't by the women's actions. We're evaluating them by the man's response to them, mm -hmm. which is crazy. Because what does David's decisions and choices and how he treats women have 
anything to do with the woman herself. So um, I, I just, I, I, I found it to be really, it's very telling. Yeah, well, I mean, but if you want to try to clean up your hero, then you have to make Bathsheba the, the villain here, because, you know, the Bible says mm -hmm. David's a man after God's own heart. So, uh, you know, there's the only way a, a good man like David is, is going to stumble into sin is if someone was really tempting him. And that's, that, that's the, unfortunately, the, the underlying mm -hmm. message. I don't know. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone specifically spell it out that way, but it's definitely those those overtones are there in the way the story gets told. There's this really weird way of thinking about women in a lot of Christian circles. You don't say. Where, yeah, right? Uh, where we are the ones who are supposed to submit, and in some um, Christian circles, it's to all men. Not just acknowledging a husband as a head of the household, which I don't really have a huge problem with that when when everything's being done right, when we've got two Christian people working together. I, I think that is shown in the Bible. Now, there's abuses that come out of an unbalanced teaching of that, absolutely. But there's this idea that all women are supposed to submit to all men. And women determine how men respond to them by the way they submit, which is insane. because. Basically, what this leads to, if you follow the logic out, women have all the power to define all the interactions we ever have with any men. Now, we have no authority, but we have all the power. Right. And this means that men have all the authority, but we're the ones with all the power. And when you separate power and authority, you wind up with two things that are completely useless. They're infuriating. They're embittering. They, they, they're frustrating. They, they lead to all of this the the things the negative things in relationships that poison this you know everything that happens between a man and a woman and so we have to be looking at the totality of scripture where we talk about mutual submission mutual respect and <clears throat> excuse me not laying the blame on one gender because when we lay the blame just on women or just on men we're saying the individual has no no rights and no responsibility and no mm -hmm. autonomy over their own person. Mm -hmm. And so that's not what the scripture says. The scripture is always saying, if you're the person doing the deed, you're the person who's guilty. Right. That, that, it's just that simple. And for some reason, everybody wants to stop applying the rules of scripture in uh, any kind of equitable way when it comes to this relationship between men and women which you, you can't find that laid out in scripture. So yeah, well, and, um, and then that feeds again, back gonna, into the, to, to bring it back ahead. to the topic that feeds back into how this story gets told and, and the, well, the vilification exactly. of Bathsheba. Exactly. And I think it's kind of one of these loops where we tell the story badly because our theology has been taught badly. And so then we tell the story badly and people start to think of Bathsheba, you know, it just, it, it's the way we tell the story impacts how we treat women and how we treat women impacts how we tell the story. And mm -hmm. so it, it, it becomes this loop that unless you make a conscious decision to break out of it, then you're going to get stuck there and it, it, you oh, well, this is just the way it is. And so, and I don't think there's any part of the Bible that we're ever supposed to read and go, oh, well, this is just the way it is. We're actually supposed to examine it. We're supposed to look at how to live it out. We're supposed mm -hmm. to apply it. 
you know, are we looking at a proof text? Are we looking at something in the totality of the context of, of scripture? Or are we looking for confirmation bias, you know, that this is not the thing that we're supposed to be using the Bible for, and actually we do violence to the scripture whenever we try to take things out of context to prove, hey, look how right I am. Because if your argument is, hey, look how right I am, and it's not about, hey, look how right God is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the wrong person is in the place of leadership there, which, again, that's the whole problem with the way we teach the story. Who's in leadership? Right, right. And and that's why I actually get really frustrated uh, whenever I listen to certain debates, because actually most debates, because <laughs> uh, most of the time the people are worried about whether or not trying to prove they're right. And it's like, mm -hmm. if you're having a proper argument, you shouldn't be worrying about whether or not you're right. You should be worrying mm -hmm. about what's true. And, exactly. And if, if you're not following what's true, regardless of, you know, your opinion, you're wrong. <laughs> right. Well, and so, yeah, this is the reason why I think it's so important we go through the story. And we're, we're going to be here at least, you know, through the rest of this episode, maybe even next week. Uh, we'll see. But, um, yeah, we're, we're told in this that, you know, David is basically saying, hey, look at me. I'm doing the right thing. I brought the widow into my house. I mean, what's true religion? Caring, caring for the widows and the orphans. Mm -hmm. Uh, look at me. I, I'm I'm doing the right thing. Y'all should still celebrate me. I'm your wonderful king. And he does this after this um, period of mourning is over. It's a, it's probably about seven days. But, we yeah, see but, that. But it doesn't really count if you made the person an orphan <laughs> and widow. Widow, is that... yeah. Pretty much, yeah. It, it, and the fact that he would act like it was so, you know, uh, I mean, it's not specifically spelled out in, in scripture until we get to Nathan talking, not you, but the prophet Nathan, Nathan talking to right. um, David. And then we realize, hey, wait a minute. This was all posing and posturing. So, um, but yeah, it's, that's the thing. Uh, if God makes somebody a widow or an orphan and you take care of them or, you know, circumstances of an evil world do this, then now we have a, a reason to celebrate someone who might actually show compassion and care. Sure. So. Um, we, uh, the seven day period, time period, it, it's not spelled out in scripture specifically for this instance. Um, most scholars suppose that because of, uh, Genesis 50, 10, and that's when, uh, Jacob laments the death of Je Joseph and it's seven days. And that was pretty standard for that culture in that time. And I, you know, it had to be pretty quick. We we know it had to be pretty quick because she's pregnant by this point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's got just a little bit of time to sneak in there and possibly, you know, cover up what he's done. And now the wording is very, very interesting because it says David brings her into the house. He doesn't, he doesn't take her, which is total different wording than what we had previously regarding her. Mm -hmm. uh, alter translates this as he gathers her into the house and there's this implication of the the care and the tenderness as opposed to the taking and this is the first hint that we might have something going on here that's a little bit more than owner property or king and powerless subject um there's like is it's just a hint but but maybe something else is going on and we're told that she becomes his wife now what we need to remember is She's got the right of refusal. Remember, women get to choose who they're going to marry mm -hmm. and who they're not going to marry. And that goes back to Isaac and Rebecca whenever the family 
says, hey, he wants to, this guy wants to take our daughter off. Let's go ask the maid. Let's go ask the girl what she thinks. And this becomes the standard. Right. Um, now, the thing is, yes, she got to choose and she did decide to become his wife. But we have to look at, again, the larger context. What choice did she really have? I mean, she's pregnant. Everybody knows her husband was off to battle. That's where he died. And so she she could be found guilty of adultery. She's looking at a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, David bringing her in does save her life because, you know, who's going to kill King's wife? And so there, there is a level of protection that only David could have given her. And I'm not saying this, this makes things right, what he did before. Uh, there's actually still very, very many problems with the situation, but we're going we're gonna to kind of work through them as we go through the text. We also learn that she's pregnant with a son. But it's the last phrase in this verse that just should stop us. And it's, but the thing David did displeased the Lord. Now, this is ESV. You know, I have a problem with the way they, they translate a lot of things. Alter actually has a much, much better translation, which, by the way, if you were serious about studying your Old Testament, and, you know, I'm not getting any kind of commission off of this. If you're serious about studying your Old Testament and you do not have any background in Hebrew, get the Robert Alter translation. It's the best one I have seen so far. I am loving it. He translates this. And the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Hmm. <laughs> How much stronger is that than, and the thing David did displeased the Lord? I mean, you, you don't have to be a Hebrew expert to realize there's a massive difference between those two statements. Oh, and, well, well we, I mean, it goes back to they have to downplay what David did. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 just, it seems to baffle a, a large amount of people in the church that, you know, God can redeem an evil situation or that, <laughs> you know, someone mm-hmm. can be forgiven of, of things. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's a very frustrating to me. Well, and I think we need to remember, too, that when we're looking at the ESV, we're looking at a Bible that was translated by people who are very open and very honest about the fact that they're complementarian. And Mm -hmm. so they do translate with that bias. And yes, uh, they are still translating, quote unquote, accurately and correctly because we have these things called synonyms. Sure. But, you know, what word you choose really does impact how you read the text. And I know I, I... I feel like I'm talking about that a lot whenever we talk about translation work. But the thing is that bugs me about it, the ESV is known for being a literal translation, a word-for-word translation. Right. And so uh, I'm, I'm told that the Greek is much better, and really that's where I did the most work with it, and that's where I kind of uh, was sold on it being a, a word-for-word translation. Um, it wasn't until we started picking apart the, these Old Testament books and I'm looking at the Hebrew and I'm going, what are they doing? Why did they make that choice? <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, when you change those words, okay, number one, you lose that connection back to Judges. Mm-hmm. And remember, one of our questions we had with Saul, is he going to be any better than a judge? You also lose that connection back to David's speech earlier in chapter 11. When he's talking to Joab, or the messenger who's going to take the message back to Joab, and David told him, said, let this thing not seem evil in your eyes. 
you know, and so, you know, David had tried to brush away Joab's concerns. He, he's, he basically is saying, hey, it's fine because I'm saying it's fine. And as king, I get to define what is good. And you don't have to think of this thing as bad because I, as king, have declared that it's okay. It's good. We're fine. And so whenever David is saying that in that moment with Joab, if we miss it, we don't understand what's going on with what God's going to do in chapter 12. And, you know, because up to this point, David's seeming to get away with all of this. Now, we read it with kind of this, this tension of knowing that it's not going to work out well because we know the rest of the story. But if this is your first time to hear the story, it looks like David's going to get out of this fine. I mean, Uriah's dead. Bathsheba lives in his house. He's going to question what the king claims to be true. And so it, it, it looks like happily ever after might be on the table for David right now. And it's just when we have that little pop at the end of chapter 11, where the writer goes, uh-uh, things aren't what they seem. Sure. Now, what we have to remember in all of this is there's only one person or one being in the entire known and unknown and possible future universe who gets to define what is good and evil, and it is God. And so if it's wrong in his eyes, if it's evil in his eyes, then it is evil. And I think one of the things we're seeing too is it doesn't matter what you and I think about something. It doesn't matter what David thinks about something. You don't get to redefine terms contrary to how God has defined them. And when God thinks that you're, you know, sees that you're doing that and we attempt to say, oh, well, this is okay because, you know, our, in our culture, it's fine. In David's culture, it was completely fine for a king to go out and take any woman he wanted, bring her to his home. And do you think a husband could say anything against that king? Absolutely not. If David hadn't had some respect for the Torah, he wouldn't even even try to cover it up. And the fact that he kills Uriah to, to, to try to cover it up, a king killing a man to get his wife, no big deal. Remember back in Genesis. Abraham was so scared that whenever he and Sarah went down to Egypt, that he would be killed so the men could take his wife. Mm -hmm. Same thing in Abimelech's court. David was doing what was culturally appropriate. And I think we forget that. So we cannot allow David to do something that is completely wrong according to God's word and say that it's okay any more than we can allow ourselves to do something that's completely against God's word and say it's okay you because know, God yeah and I, I just, yeah and appropriate according to the surrounding culture not appropriate to how the people of God should be behaving I think I think you kind of touched on that I just wanted to make that really clear right you know, be holy as I am holy that that when you are one of God's children, there is a different standard of behavior, and it is defined by God and um, not according to anyone. Nobody gets that kind of right or autonomy um, when you are part of the, the community of God. And I think the other thing we need to remember, too, is David is beginning to adopt these cultural mindsets. I mean, remember back when he had the speech with Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth came near him, and he says, fear not, do not be afraid. What, what's he adopting there? He was adopting God's language. We talked about that. And the, the writer goes further to, to cast David in a godlike role in the opening of chapter 11. He's, he's out for this evening stroll. 
who walks in the cool of the evening? God. Go back to Genesis. And when God walks in the garden. And so then you've got him walking on the rooftop above. He's in this lofty position looking down. And so, you know, it's, it's very much David seeming to forget who he is. And he's forgetting to be reliant on God. And he's forgetting that every great and wonderful thing in his life is a direct gift from God. Right. And so um, the, the final point with this chapter before we jump into uh, chapter 12 is we see with David that he's capable of every evil that happened under the rule of Saul and every evil that happened during the time of the judges. That still lived inside of him. He was a product of his time and culture. This is not making it all right, but this is a reminder of what God is calling people out of. And David, for a minute, excuse me, he forgets that this is not who he's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And he starts to tiptoe up to that line that Saul was always walking. Was he going to be a king like other nations? So we're going to move into chapter 12. And, um, you know, if you remember when we read through chapter 11, if you were paying real close to uh, close attention, there was no mention of God in the interactions between David and Bathsheba. And um, I'm going to guess that's probably the last thing David was thinking about. Isn't that funny? Isn't it funny? But I love, okay, so here's kind of what I love about the way this writer works. David's not thinking of him, so the writer doesn't bring him up, so you're not thinking of him. And, you know, when you read through the story of sex and violence, even though it's in the Bible, how often are we actively thinking of God at the same time? And so, you know, we kind of get caught up in the story, and that's very intentional on the writer's part. But then, like, at that last second, he slips that little zinger in, but God was displeased, or what David had done was evil on the side of God. And God's going to return to the story in a powerful way in chapter 12. So, just the first line. I just want to look at the first line of the first verse. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, we've already seen, and we've talked about it a lot, that the royal prerogative, the right and privilege of a king, is to send. Chapter 9, David sent messengers to Mephibosheth. Chapter 10, he sent messengers to Hanun. He sent messengers to Joab in battle. In chapter 11, he sent for Bathsheba. He sent for Uriah. He tried to send Uriah home. Um, he sent Uriah back into battle to be killed. He sent a message to Joab. So David has been occupying this, this role of being able to send. But when God steps back on the scene, he's like, "My, this is mine. I get to send. Mm-hmm. And he starts by sending his prophet. And we are reminded, with, I mean, if we've been reading closely and we've been thinking about this whole story in context, we're reminded of David's position in the, uh, before the Lord. He is the crippled son. He's the one who's in need of covenantal mercy and grace. And by all standards of the law, just like Mephibosheth was unworthy and unable to fulfill the, the um, position of kingship because of this crippling sin, um, uh, 
physical ailment, Mm -hmm. David is undeserving of grace and mercy and fulfilling the position of king because of a crippling spiritual ailment. Hmm. Um, He is the enemy of God's people because he's brought disgrace and shame on those who should be comforters to him, just like Hanun. Remember, the comforters, the servants, the uh, the paraclete, but uh, the same word there, um, they're, they're sent to be a comfort and David had, was supposed to receive comfort from the people who came to him. Instead, he humiliates them. Uh, he's the warrior who should lead his troops into battle. He's not doing that. And he's as much mercy as, he's as much at the mercy of God as Bathsheba was at the mercy of the whim of a powerful king, as Uriah was whenever he would carry his own death sentence to, the, uh, to Joab. So all of the, the, the false excuses, the, the justifications that David had going on in his head, and the, even the comfort that he offered Joab, it, it's meaningless mm-hmm. because now God's shown up. And, you know, he, David has deceived himself, and we realize that because why now a messenger of truth is standing in front of him. And we, it, this is the lesson that David has to learn. So we'll continue with verse, uh, verse 1. Uh, the second part says, he, we're talking about Nathan here, came to him and said, there were two men in a certain city. Now, this is a formulaic introduction. Um, Alter notes that most stories in the Bible begin with, there was a man. We see this in Job 1.1. We see it in 1 Samuel 1.1. And this whole story is going to revolve around parallel terms. There's a rich man. There's a poor man. And the writer even pulls in some very obscure and very uh, rare Hebrew words to really drive home this delineation between the two. And I, I did stop myself before I went back and looked at all those words and drug y'all way down a grammar hole. So um, we aren't going to do that. But, you know, I think it's pretty obvious from the way that the story is constructed that Nathan, the prophet, wants you to... Um, wants you to compare and contrast. Sure. He wants you to really see the differences between the two. So, you know, the story is obviously a parable, um, which is, it's weird that David doesn't pick up on that. You would think that he would realize it, but he, he seems to just be completely caught up in the story, as we're going to see. Um, we're pretty familiar with the idea of parables having a prophetic word. Now, when I say prophetic, um, prophetic does not always mean foretelling the future. I mean, obviously here, Nathan's not foretelling the future. He's actually describing something that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, now he will go on to talk about future events and we'll talk about that. Prophetic is about revealing truth, speaking truth. It's not about telling the future that that comes from our own, um, bias and the fact that we've got a lot of Greek influence. And so we forget that telling the truth is probably more powerful than revealing the future. Uh, you know, that's the revealing the future is kind of the, the glitz and glam that catches people's attention, but the meat of it, that's the truth. And so the idea of, of parables revealing truth and operating in a prophetic way, we're kind of used to that. You know, of course, Jesus does that. Right. But it's, all, it's also not unfamiliar during this time. I mean, if you remember back, remember back to Judges 9, we have Jotham's fable, right? Where and Jotham was the son of Gideon, and Gideon's other son, Abimelech. Jotham was the only one who who survives Abimelech's attack and massacre of Gideon's kids. And 
Abimelech tried to be the king of Israel. He was a false king. And so even in using the parable, there's this little thread, this little hint that David may not be the true and rightful king of Israel after all. And so, again, if you're reading the story for the first time, you don't know what's going on. Now you're going to be wondering, okay, wait a minute, what's really going on here? Is there more beneath the surface? So verse two, the rich man had his own, had very many flocks. I, I love the Hebrew here. The Hebrew is has, the rich man had flocks and herds, many, exceedingly. So the Hebrew really drives it home. This guy has a lot of flocks. There's a lot of sheep living around his house. Well, it's, it's kind of that extreme language like we find in the book of Jonah. Mm-hmm. Everything is over the top, you know, or, or even in Jesus's parables when he talks about the, you know, the servants who had the debts, you know, the, the numbers he throws out are just absurd. It's like, this guy spent all the money in Rome, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's one of the, the disconnects that, that we have. Um, we, we don't see the magnitude because our, our idea, I think a lot of times when people think about Bible times, we're talking about, you know, some desert, a desert, dusty place. And, you know, it's kind of barren. There's a few trees and, you know, you can get some sheep on the flocks. And there might be some, you know, very simple towns. Um, but we forgot that that life that people lived there was every bit as real and impactful as the lives we live. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, when they heard these numbers and they heard these things, it meant something to them because this was their world. And sometimes we have to really work to put ourselves back there. But uh, verse three, it says, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought. So we've got the singular contrasted with the many. Uh, He bought it. It was something he worked for. It was something he invested in. It was something that um, was not given to him. And he put effort into acquiring this ewe lamb. We're not told where the rich man gets his sheep. Uh, but the fact that we have the poor man's way of acquisition included versus the rich man's being neglected kind of suggests that he didn't work for them, that he, maybe he inherited them. They, they, were, they just were. Right. So, and he brought it up, talking about the poor man, and it grew up with him and his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Okay, so my first thought when I hear this is, a sheep? Uh-uh. It, it ain't coming anywhere near my dinner table, but that's not the point. And sometimes we got to remember whenever we're, we're um, making a point within a parable, the, the literal facts don't matter as much as the picture that's, that is being presented. And so this eating and drinking connects us back with Uriah. You know, he ate and he drank with David. David tried to get him drunk so that he would go home and have sex with his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, lying in his arms. Well, obviously, that's a connection back to Bathsheba. As a matter of fact, she, she's like a daughter to him. She's like a bot. Bathsheba's name is not Bath. It's Bat-sheba. So right there, we almost have the name within the, the parable itself. Uh, to lie in his arms is the kind of almost the implication of a sexual relationship. And of course, we don't want to talk about that one in Sunday school. But it, it, it's supposed to show you how close they were. And again, parable, not literal, not factual. This is to paint you a picture of how deeply this man cared for this sheep. And the, the language is very deliberately confusing because we have languages that says, you know, she's a lamb. 
she's a daughter, she's a wife, all within this one story. And I think that uh, if we try to get too literal with parables, then we kind of get a little lost sometimes. And we get, you know, if we ever get to Jesus' parables, we'll talk about that too. Um, the, the, the point is the story, while fictitious, has to connect us back to reality in some way. And so the, the thing that the writer is trying to, or Nathan's trying to, to express and convey more than anything is this lamb is more than a piece of livestock. It, it's even more than a pet. For this man, this, this little sheep was almost human. And in being almost human, the impending death is almost as, um, it, it's like a murder. Right. And so the fact that, yeah, you, so you want that emotional connection here. Now, here's where I think it gets fun. Um, I, I know, I, 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 I say it gets fun. It's a horrible story, but I love Fun's the way Fun's probably the not has, the right word. I know, I know. It, I like the way the, the writer puts it together. That's what appeals to me. That's what makes this interesting. Um, we're going to read through verse 4. It says, Now came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling, talking about the rich man, to take of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, lots of stuff going on in this verse. Uh, first, we have this progression of the traveler's identity. He begins as a halak. This is, this is somebody who is traveling. Uh, if you know the word uh, halakha, which is you know, to walk or the way, uh, we talk about uh, halakhic law in Judaism, that's the kind of law that teaches you actually how to live out the commandments. Right. And so um, the, the fact that he's, you know, he's moving through, he's passing by is the main thing. So very co connected to the idea of movement. Then he becomes an ara, which is a, a guest, is a visitor. He's somebody you invite into your home. And so now he, he's somebody that you're going to feed and you're going to take care of. You're going to, you know, kill the lamb. You're going to, to give him a bed for the night. But by the end of the verse, he's actually an ish. Now, ish typically just means man, but it can also mean master. And so the rabbis pick up on this and they, they said that this, this traveler, this um, guy who, who came into David's home or into the rich man's home, is a representation of the Ezeera, or Ezeera, sorry, uh, which is the evil inclination. And so, um, you know, first the, the, he's, the evil inclination passes by. And so that's when David saw Bathsheba. And then David invites the evil inclination into his home, and this is mm. when he sends out the messengers and, and, and begins to act on what he's seen. And in the end, evil inclination becomes his master and is dictating all of his, um, his decisions. So I, I thought that was a really good um, illustration sometimes of how sin and temptation is presented. It, it's, it is a, something that passes by. We, we see it. And it is something that we either invite in or we, we turn away. And... Uh, you know, sometimes the rabbis come up with some really useful things and not just crazy stuff that I like to share uh, because I find it amusing or interesting. So um, now the, the ESV translates the uh, Hebrew chamal 
with unwilling. He was unwilling to take from his flock. Uh, the word actually means to pity or get this. And I think y'all see where I'm going with it to have compassion on. So th in some context, it, it's translated to spare as into spare a life. Now you spare a life because you've either pitied someone or you've had compassion. Uh, the, the translators in the English are really trying to smooth out the translation so that it makes sense. The problem is it's really hard to translate irony. And that's exactly what. Um, which is which is basically the problem with all of the Internet. Right. I think is, or at least most of it. Well, we know Alanis Morissette missed it, but, uh, you know. So, yeah, there's that, but go yeah, ahead. But, you know, when you, the man fails to have compassion for the, 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 um, the poor man because he has compassion on his own flocks. He has compassion on the many, so he can't have compassion on the few. Now, if you, you know, if you remember the story of the 99 and the 1, when Jesus is talking about going out to find that lost lamb, you know, the, the, the idea that Jesus goes out to find this lost lamb, it, we, we all want to celebrate that because we all think that we're the last lamb. Um, you know, but the, the 99 here left without a guard, they, they don't feel like they're being taken good care of at this point. And so the the... The issue with David's story for so long now is this idea of misplaced and misapplied compassion. And so we, we've seen this in the previous chapters, and especially with Hey Noon, when David uh, gives compassion to the opposite kingdom, to the son of Nakash. Mm. And so Nathan's saying, this is the problem. You, you aren't having compassion on the right ones. And uh, David hasn't got that far yet, but David the shepherd hears the story and it clicks in his head because what's interesting is David doesn't identify himself with the rich man. At this point in the story, David is very much the rich man. Mm -hmm. He's the guy with everything. That's not how he sees himself. He goes back to that moment where he is the, the shepherd boy. He He's the kid on the hill. He He's the one who... If you go and read the Psalms later on, we're going to find David's the one who's been estranged from his brothers. He's the one who found, found his time during his childhood to be very bitter, very alone, and even his family to be very cruel. And so that's going to mean some, at least to some interesting implications. That's the person David identifies with, not the rich guy. And so he sets aside the rich guy in this moment to place himself in that position. And in doing so, he remembers his true identity. And so, um, you know, there, there's something really amazing about that. And we're going to talk about why. But um, verse 8, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David gets it. He he gets to the to the 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 root cause, and he he actually says not that this man deserves to die. This man is a son of death, and so I mean, he gets it very very pointed that and, you know a son of death not only experiences death but he spreads death, and that's who he says this man is in failing to have compassion. Uh, Rashi actually to have pity or compassion. Okay. You you yeah, combined them. 
Oh, I figured, oh, did I? I figured everyone would know uh, what you were talking about, but you I made it a, a, com- a combination of the two. So, um, I do that often. <laughs> so. Go ahead. Well, Rashi actually, he, he builds on this and he says, when you steal from the poor, it's the same as taking their life. So this idea that when you take from the poor, it is almost the same as committing murder. Uh, it's very much something presented within the scripture. Um, and, and uh, even more so with the rabbinic uh, teachings because they, they build on it. However, the problem with David's statement here is within the Torah, stealing something doesn't result in death. Um, Exodus 21.37 actually says if you steal somebody's sheep, then you pay him back four times, which you know David said he's got to pay four times. I did find it interesting. The sheep you pay four times, the ox you pay five times. But hmm. yeah, now now the Talmud goes on to say that David has pronounced his own death sentence. One, this this guy or his own sentence, he says he deserves to die. So death is brought into the equation. David David's the one who who invited it in. He seems to be good at inviting things in. Um, having four of his beloved taken from him. Is going to be what happens in his future. He has to pay fourfold. So Bathsheba's baby is going to die. Uh, Amnon is going to die. Tamar is going to be violently raped. That's his daughter. And Absalom, of course, his other son is going to die. So David sees the fulfillment of his own words within his own lifetime. And in the Gemara, it, it's very proper that people pronounce their own sentence. Hmm. Um, Remember back when Rachel Rachel stole the uh, combine the words again when Rachel stole the the teraphim from Laban and Jacob he says you know whoever did this deserves to die well what happens to Rachel right you know, David David pronounced the death I mean sorry Jacob pronounced the death death sentence right then so this idea that you would speak and you would pronounce judgment on another but then it turns around and it it comes back for you. And, you know, Jesus kind of built on this, too, when we talk about over in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged in the same manner. You know, that word there isn't just judge. It's, it's got the idea of condemn. Don't condemn unless you're condemning yourself. Where does Jesus come up with this idea? Jesus rarely preaches something so radically new that his audience had no idea what he was talking about. The audience already was very familiar with this concept that what you pronounced against another was very likely to come back against you if you were the guilty party. And so David right. here, he pronounces his own sentence. So yeah, it's, it, it, it's just, it's, it's brilliant. This whole story is just brilliant. Um, but David, most importantly, the, the most important thing that he says here is he deserves to die because the, the man has no pity and no compassion. And he gets it, he understands. And what we need to think back now Go back to the first part of First Samuel. Remember where we started with the story. We have two other deposed leaders. We have two men who were supposed to be representatives of God to the people who were removed from that position. Each one of them, they had a prophet who came to them and said, hey, you need to straighten your life up. You need to start getting your house in order because things are not right. And the men that these prophets came to did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. And so a second time a prophet came to them and said, hey, 
God's rejected you. God doesn't want anything to do with you because you didn't listen to him the first time. And so, you know, it, we start that with Eli. Eli's got two prophets. One is an Ish Elohim, a, a man of God. The other one is Samuel. Neither time that Eli's approached does he even talk to his kids. And, and Eli's house is removed from the priesthood. And, and they're condemned. They're going to be sent begging for bread. The second one is Saul. And so Saul, of course, he got told at least twice that by Samuel himself, God wants nothing to do with you because you are not doing the right thing. And Samuel never, I mean, Saul never uh, figured it out and never straightened it out. Now, David hears from a prophet one time, one time, and he sees right to the heart of the matter. He recognizes what the issue is, and he says, this is what the right thing to do is. And so he, he sees past the letter of the law even. And this is, this is the really crazy thing because the letter of the law is four. The guy has to repay four times. David said this is so heinous and so grievous that the man deserves to die. He sees the spirit of the law because he understands that the rich man took this man's life away from him mm -hmm. by taking this, this lamb. And so David hasn't connected it to himself yet. But the fact that he understands the, the, the significance of the story already puts him ahead of the leadership that, was, that came before him, that heard from the prophets, were told the truth head on, no ambiguity, didn't, you know, th there was no denying that God's intent in what the, you know, the prophet's words were. And David hears a story and says, this is the correct interpretation. And so he also realizes, too, that if everybody receives compassion, no one receives compassion. Right. That compassion has to be demonstrated to the proper person and be applied properly. And so um, the, the, the fun, I use that word, the interesting thing about this <laughs> is that just as David spoke his own sentence, it, it's a, it's a reversal of what he did to Uriah. Remember, Uriah carried his own death sentence. Now David speaks his death sentence. And so God just, you know, he, he takes these things that we do, things that we set in motion, and he flips them. And so I, I am, I'm just always astonished by that. So verse 7a, Nathan says, Ata haish, you are the man. David, you know, you know there's the, Nathan just points it out. I mean, the, there's no escaping it. And um, it, it's at this point that a lot of com commentators think that Nathan is going to begin the word of God that he was actually sent to say. This is the speech that he, you know, uh, had prepared beforehand that he had lined out. And it's from verse seven forward. They think that the parable was probably something that he, you know, he walks in and he's got this moment of inspiration, which would also be God, because to be inspired is to breathe in the breath of a deity. Um, that's the literal um, translation of that word. And so, you know, he's inspired in this moment to use a story instead of just a direct proclamation. Mm -hmm. And and you can see why, because um, he says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And we know that is the correct introduction for a prophetic word. 
Mm-hmm. So he says, I have anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arm and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So listen up, you little pipsqueak. I gave you everything. I gave you over and above anything you could have ever hoped for. And you're acting this way. You don't have the right to take anything because I give. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's a very pointed speech. We know that David had Saul's property. Why? Because he returned at least part of it, the, the personal property, to Mephibosheth. Uh, we don't have any record that he took Saul's wives. We know that um, Abner did, but we don't know about David. It wouldn't have been uncommon for a conquering king to take the wives of the previous king. We've talked about that before. However, the word for wives in Hebrew is actually woman. So it could have been that um, David took Saul's women. and It could have been a reference to Michal and uh, Merav. Israel and Judah. Remember back in the beginning of the story. David was king over Judah, and then he becomes king over Israel. So the totality of the land, it's not just his tribe, it is everyone, which none of the judges ever managed to unite all of Israel under single leadership. Saul just barely managed to do it. If you wanted more, you should have just asked. And we know that David knows this. Back in chapter 7, God says, hey, I'm going to make this covenantal promise. This is all the things I'm going to do for you. These are the things I have done. David says, yep, you're absolutely right. He replays the history of Israel to to God and says, and since you're capable of doing this and you have done this in the past, I fully expect you to do more because you are more. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've seen that David knows the truth. This isn't like God springing something so new that David has absolutely no clue of how to process this. This is stuff that David has acknowledged with his own mouth in in the past. And at this point, God isn't even yelling at David for, for violating the Torah. He's yelling da- at David for not having faith, you know, faith that God would continue to bless and faith in God's character. And so th- this is this dealing of God with David. I don't know, it just, to me, it, this moment, it, it, it just demonstrates how good God is, that what David's accountable for isn't stuff that, oops, I accidentally slipped. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, he's accountable for things that he knows and he knows intimately. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is what irritates God and the fact that God has known I mean, David has known God intimately, and he he has had such a great understanding of the character of God, and yet he's messed up. And God says, I'm not mad at you for what, you know, just what you did. I'm I'm mad that you forgot who I am, and I'm mad that you forgot who you were when I called you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so with David, it really is that moment of that that shuv that return is what God's looking for, not to to be something David never was before, but to remember who he was, and that was what we saw with the story, and so with, with his response where he puts himself in that that man with the one lamb, and that that's the character he identifies with, not the rich man, which was very telling that that really is the core identity of who David is. So, um, verse nine. 
why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, we need to make it very clear that disobeying God and doing the things he calls evil is despising the word of the Lord. When God says something is evil, he's not mistaken. He's not presenting you a cultural or contextual reality. He is saying, I don't like this. And because I'm God, I get to say what I do and don't like. Only God decides what's good and evil. We talked about that previously. Um, David didn't get to redefine God's words. We don't get to redefine what's God's words. As a matter of fact, when he tries to do it, all of us who go back and read his story go, oh, that's bad. Mm -hmm. So if we can look at David and go, man, when he did that, that was so awful. That was a horrible thing to do. Why do we think we can do it in our own lives? Right. But anyway, none of this mess started with Bathsheba. And I think that's what we forget. It started when he began thinking of himself as a king and decided to, to define himself according to cultural norms. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, like you said, it didn't start with Bathsheba, but because we break the Bible up into these little episodic stories and we don't read it with any continuity, we, we, mm -hmm. like I said before, we treat the same character from the whole story like they've never even met themselves, <laughs> right. let alone anyone else in the story or that anything that it just carries over. And so I think, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, uh, you know, thinking about it that way. It's, it's almost kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of building this thought as I'm going, but it's kind of nice that we actually have like, television series that carry over a story arc through a whole season mm -hmm. and then build on that for later seasons as opposed to you know it used to just be monster of the week or whatever on a lot right. of sci-fi stuff but now mm -hmm. we're getting these stories that are in depth and you've got to follow it for five seasons if you're lucky you know uh, and 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 well, so we're we're able to see and line things up better so it's almost like we're kind of getting taught <laughs> through our entertainment how to read our bible Oh, no, I, I, I'm with you because I, you know, I used to love a good movie. Used to used to think that was like the the best form of entertainment that we had, you know, readily available um, to, you know, other than travel or something like that. But in your home. Sure. Um, now I can hardly stand to watch movies because there's not enough character development. Yeah, there's, there's not no enough time. Yeah. <laughs> and so and, and and so, no, I think it's a really good point because. It is almost hard to connect David, who, who does this terrible thing to Bathsheba, with David who kills Goliath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it, it's, it's hard to, to think of the David who, who fought and killed all the Philistines to get Michal as his wife as the guy who kills Uriah. And so I, I, I think part of that is, like you said, you know, and we've talked about this several times, that we, we've had the flannel graph version we, and mm -hmm. we, we've had where we've got to keep the kids. We've got to get their attention for this one hour on Sunday morning and another hour on Wednesday night. And mm -hmm. how do we do this? Well, we tell the most sensational stories possible. And, and then these kids grew up and then they went to church, big church. And, you know, and now the pastor's like, well, this is how we kept them entertained when they were in the youth group. And, and we've carried that ideology over into uh, a lot of churches. And, you know, I, I remember growing up where, quote unquote, big church, uh, as we referred to it, 
the the pastor did go through the book. He did start at the beginning and work his way through. And you were expected to be there to follow along. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this this idea that now we I mean we're gonna preach about the movie of the week. I mean, it's funny, we're talking about movies. But I mean, that was a big thing for a long time. We're gonna talk about the the movie that, that everybody's talking about, and that's gonna become our, our sermon illustration, and we're gonna attach the right Bible verses to it. Sure. And there is no continuity with of the text when we preach that way. Uh is it horrible? Is it wrong? It's I don't think it's evil. Uh I think if we do it consistently and we never offer any kind of cohesive uh, Bible study, then there's an issue. Right. Um, but, you know, that the cohesive uh, contextual Bible studies are, are should be where we focus on. And that, you know, if you want to throw in the, the fluff and the filler and let's 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 uh, catch their attention and, and offer something that that might be different, do that occasionally. But but don't expect your people to live on cotton candy. And, you know, and since we're, you know, I'm on the food metaphor, so I have to throw this out there. Quit telling me that the only thing your congregation congregation needs is milk and that you don't right. want to serve meat because you don't want to choke the new babies. OK, if you are a good host, you put some milk on the table, you put some meat on the table, you put some salad on the table, side of green beans, a little, you know, potato salad, whatever. People can take what they're capable of handling. And then you're actually being a good host instead of saying, this is all I'm giving you. And this is all you deserve. This is all you can handle. You aren't allowing them to experiment. And, you know, and I won't even go into, I'm, I'm dealing with toddlers right now and they're learning how to eat yep. real food. And, uh, you know, and that's a process and you don't, you don't teach them that by just continuing to hand them a bottle. So um, I think any parent who's been there, uh, knows that. So anyway, um, I think probably that's a good place to put a semicolon before I get too carried away. Okay. So <laughs> okay. we'll, we'll pause there and we'll be back, um, next week and find out, uh, what happens after this awkward conversation between David and Nathan, <laughs> right. because I'm pretty sure it had to have been an awkward conversation, right? <laughs> Yeah, uh, George Fox actually said something along the lines, those who confront evil in high places should not weave uh, survival too centrally into their lives or something like that. Right, so, right. you know, not, yeah, definitely an awkward and uh, possibly life-threatening conversation, too. Yeah, well, so. we'll get into that uh, next week. In the meantime, if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on the, the Raven Creek SC on all the social media, ravencreeksc.com. The website gets you to... This show notes um, also gets you to uh, change my mind with Luke T. Harrington and commentarians with Joe Zaragoza. <laughs> I'm trying. It's still we're getting more. Yeah, we're. I'm trying to think. We're uh, tending, tending our nets, nets with Joshua Sherman. We're uh, kind of accidentally turned into a little podcasting network somehow. But <laughs> anyway, uh, that being said, uh, go check those out. They're great shows, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.